Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Last week, my aim was to try and bring the study in the covenants to something of a conclusion. Not that we won't talk of these things again. They're obviously throughout the scriptures and come up many times in uh, in their study. But as far as our, well, it's not really Advent series anymore. It's extended into the new year. But we'll try to summarize it and and bring it to a close. And so I've really struggled to know uh, exactly how to do that. But I kept coming back to... 1 Corinthians 15 here, and so let's pick up together at uh, verse 20, and we'll just uh, read down to 28. So 1 Corinthians 15, picking up at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, who, is put, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And each week we remember together that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's ask his help as we consider this text before us. Father, we come again to you and we realize, Lord, that it is Lord, in you that we live and move and have our being. And Lord, we know also that we do not live by bread alone, for we are more than simply flesh and blood, but we also have been given a soul, Lord, and, and we are to be nourished by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we look to you now to be as pure manna and living water to our, to our thirsty souls. God, would we rightly understand um, your word, and Lord, as we try to conclude our study in in the various covenants across redemptive history, that you would just give further clarity and understanding. And Lord, really, as we step back and look at all of this, 
and how you have brought it to fulfillment in Christ, that our response would be uh, worship and wonder and awe, and also a deep sense of assurance and confidence that, Lord, your plan surely will come to fulfillment um, in the last day when all things are glorified and we stand before the, the great throne of Christ's judgment and, Lord, the um, wicked are driven out like the chaff. We, we pray you help us to, to know these things with certainty in our hearts and that we, we would live as though these things are true. And so I pray you help now as I seek to teach and preach. And we pray that it would be in accordance with your word and that the hearts of each one would be receptive from the youngest to the old. They would be, Lord, just ministered to through your word this morning. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So before we try to examine the uh, scripture we just read here and a little bit further into 1 Corinthians 15, uh, I want to just try to do my best to summarize all that we have covered over these past weeks, looking at the covenants and how, and looking then to Paul uh, after I try to summarize, looking at how this will all come to a great conclusion in this age and, and, and usher us into the eternal state, into the age to come and try to see how it is in the context of covenant that this also takes place. As you know, uh, well, many of you know, Pastor Ben was up this weekend and was able to do some teaching on Bible study, Bible interpretation, and sermon preparation. And, uh, and so, if it's, ladies, if your husband seems a little extra sluggish over the weekend here, I, I think we all felt a little... Uh, Overwhelmed with the amount of material that we went through, but it was a blessing to be together. And, and Ben uh, many times used the imagery of a miner uh, as he's talking about studying the scripture and coming to the scripture that we are trying to, to mine out the, these jewels, these precious gems of truth that reveal God to us. And, and just as a miner would be thrilled to find a precious jewel in the earth, his response would be to, to delight in that, but also want to share that with those around him. And uh, I suppose I've certainly felt something like uh, uh, a maniacal <laughs> minor with their study in the covenants and in trying to learn. And as I'm learning, trying to also uh, explain and show to you. And you have been gracious to, to listen and, and ask questions and, and interact with the study. So I, I do pray that it has really been more than anything just, just helped you to, to begin thinking about this issue. And uh, something that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And we saw last week our understanding of these covenants actually has important implications, not only on our views of, of eschatology, but also in, in how we would look at Israel today, how we understand the nature of the church and, and what it means to be a member of the covenant. Uh, all of these things are, are important and they flow out of, of this study. So I pray that uh, it has been helpful and has launched you on a, a further study of your own into some of these. And if you would like some uh, resources to consider, listen to, I certainly would be happy to, to point some things to you that have been helpful to me. So what are some of the covenants? You could just uh, call them out and help me out here a bit. What are some of the covenants that we have seen from Genesis to Revelation? Um, you could just name them, thinking back to the garden. What was the initial covenant that we looked at? 
Yeah, covenant of works is, is often a name that is given. Uh, God's agreement with Adam to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if he was to eat of it, then he would bring about death and, uh, and the curse. Okay, thank you. Um, there's another one uh, after Adam. We didn't really spend a lot of time. We did talk about it more in passing. But uh, maybe some of the, even the children could help me with this one. What was the, the covenant um, sign that had the rainbow attached to it? Do you remember the name of that covenant? Oh, the, the covenant sign was the rainbow. What was the name of the covenant that was given there with the man who built something? <laughs> I can't just tell you. The... Uh, not specifically. This one was named after a man who, who built the boat. What was the man's name who built the boat? Covenant of Noah. Noah, right. Thank you. The covenant with Noah. So the Noahic covenant, we looked at that one just in passing, and it connects to the covenant with, with uh, creation in many ways. Um, so moving on, what was another covenant we looked at then? God called out a specific man um, from Ur. What's that? Yes, we did get to Moses. Yep. So first, um, Abraham was called out to initially start this people. So we refer to that initial agreement with Abraham as the Abrahamic and then that covenant was expanded with the Mosaic, uh, Steve mentioned. And that was also then uh, added to and expanded in the Davidic covenant. So the promise given to David that through his line specifically would come the seed through whom the nations would be blessed and would sit upon the Davidic throne forever and ever. And then that brought us to um, the final covenant in Christ uh, in which we... Um, I'm probably most familiar with, I suppose, the final covenant we have looked at called the... <laughs> In fact, our Bible is divided into these two covenants. We have the Old Testament, which testament is like covenant, uh, and the New Testament, right? New covenant. So we looked uh, a bit at that as well and how all of these point us forward to Christ. And in Christ, we find the fulfillment of uh, and the ultimate uh, reality that all the other covenants were pointing us to. And uh, another really helpful thing to try and remember, I've mentioned this a few times, is that when we talk about covenant, the, the, one of the primary functions that a covenant has is to establish and define kingdom. So you can look at all of these various covenants, and they really pertain to three specific kingdoms, the covenant with Adam and Noah relates specifically to the kingdom of creation. And the covenant with Abraham and with Moses or through Moses and with David pertain specifically at that time to the, to the kingdom of Israel. And therefore the new covenant defines and uh, contains the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. It is the ultimate Reality, And so through these covenants, God establishes kingdom. And that is uh, also very helpful to, to remember. One last um, important element, and then we'll just do a little bit of um, more review, is that the covenants have a federal head. So God, in setting up these covenants, has seen fit to establish a federal head through whom the covenant will be established and through whom the membership of that covenant will be defined. 
So who are in the covenant with Adam? Well, all of his offspring, which is all of mankind. We are all caught up in the effects of the fall because he stands as the federal head of that initial covenant. The same for Moses. We are all recipients of the promise given to, or to, or to Noah. Sorry, We are all recipients of the promise given to Noah that God would not flood the earth. He would give it a time of of uh, consistency, enabling the, the, the purposes of God in Christ to be realized. So we all receive benefits as descendants of Noah. He stands as a federal head. Abraham, it, initially, it was given to his physical offspring, the people of Israel, the Jews, later defined by the 12 tribes coming from his grandson, Jacob. And therefore, the, the promises of the land, the, the covenants, all of these things were initially given to the offspring of Abraham, who stands as the federal head of that covenant. So the membership of it is defined according to the federal head, their connection to the federal head. And of course, what's interesting with Abraham is he has a dual offspring, not only according to the flesh, But we just read together in our time of confession, Paul said, we are the circumcision. And you're like, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about a spiritual offspring to Abraham by faith, the children of Abraham. So Abraham is interesting in that there is a dual offspring, but he stands as a federal head. And as we come then to um, David, he stands as a federal head. It will be his offspring that will receive the blessing of the, of the throne, which we know as Christ. And, of course, Christ himself being the son of Abraham. Sometimes Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, and that's what Paul's picking up in 1 Corinthians 15. He's also in the line of Adam, not born of man, but born of woman. Woman coming from man. So Jesus, in, in Christ, we see a new Adam as the federal head. We see a new Abraham, in a sense, a new David, in a sense. He is the offspring, the seed of Abraham. He is the son of David who stands in the new covenant as the federal head. This is why Paul would say Christ is the head of the church. So who are the church? Well, the church are the new covenant people. They are the the members of this covenant who have been united to Christ by faith and therefore partakers in the benefits of this covenant. So what we begin to realize as we come to the New Testament is all the previous covenants point beyond themselves. They do contain promises that are relevant to the immediate context, the, the Israelite people enjoying the benefits of the land, enjoying prosperity when they were faithful to keep the covenant, and, and God... Um, protecting David and his line, and there was, there was um, implications there, even in the sacrificial system. But they ultimately pointed forward to Christ, who is the great reality, the single offspring of Abraham, as Paul would say in Galatians 3.15. He is the seed that God promised. He is the son of David, who will take up this mantle as the king of God's kingdom. So the new covenant then is established in the blood of Christ. 
It is also sometimes referred to as the covenant of grace. And we saw last week a little bit how the covenant of grace can be a little tricky because uh, from the, the confessional Baptist perspective, the new covenant and covenant of grace are really synonymous terms. Where from the Westminster Confession, the covenant of grace uh, is distinct from the new covenant. So I, I won't get into all that right now, but that is just a helpful thing to be aware of there. Uh, that will say the same words and sometimes mean different things, and, and it's important to help clarify that. But, but all are agreed that the substance of all of this is in Christ. He is the one who comes forth as the sacrificial lamb, as the one who will shed his blood, who will die to purchase a people unto God, and in his resurrection be uh, be glorified, be, um, uh, sorry, the word is escaping me, but in, in the resurrection of Christ, be validated, vindicated by the Father, and in Him, our salvation eternally is secure. And so as Christ dies upon the cross, as He is raised on the third day, and then He ascends into heaven, and from this seed, as the federal head of the new covenant, Christ pours out his spirit upon his people, upon the members of this covenant, upon the kingdom citizens, and they are born again. They are filled with the spirit. The law of God is written upon their hearts. All of these promises that were foretold through Ezekiel. We looked at Ezekiel, Jeremiah. The time is coming when I will write my law upon their hearts, no longer on simply um, tablets of stone. That was fulfilled in Christ, and we are washed by the power of His Spirit through His death and resurrection and ascension. And this is the substance, the essence of the new covenant. And in His agreement, the Father makes to all who will by faith turn from their sin and believe upon Christ, you will be forgiven, you will be joined to Christ, you will be brought into the family of God, you will be partakers of the kingdom of Christ. And so the old covenants, as Christ comes onto the scene and he accomplishes our salvation at Calvary and rises from the dead, all of these old covenants give way. They become, as we saw last week in Hebrews, they become obsolete because Christ, the reality, has come. And many uh, different uh, teachers have used the illustration of scaffold workers and I think is, is helpful as we think about Israel and the Old Covenants and all that God did in the Old Testament. It wasn't meaningless. It wasn't without purpose. Many have compared them to like the scaffold workers who were used by God to prepare a building. We could say to prepare a temple through which the entire world will be blessed. And they are laboring and they are working and God is through them preparing the way for this one to come. But as Jesus is revealed and he is manifest, the tragedy of Israel is that though they were to be preparing the way and through Israel this offspring would come, by and large Israel rejected Christ and refused to enter into the very building that they were part of preparing. Christ, the true temple of God. This is why Jesus would say, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And they're thinking, this guy is crazy. It took hundreds of years to build this. this. And, and, and they think that, that Jesus thinks he's going to rebuild this temple in three days. And, 
And John just clearly states Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. He is the temple of God. And Israel was there as scaffold workers to prepare the way that we might enter in and be blessed. And I just want to look at Acts 28 here. I know you're wondering, when are we going to look at 1 Corinthians 15? But we will get there. And um, I want to just look at how Paul explains and talks about all of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament as it pertains to Christ. And here in Acts 28, uh, verse 23, Paul, uh, we're told, is in Rome. And he's in chains. But even there in in Rome, as he is confined to... uh, a room that we're told he is actually able to, to rent. Even there, he, is, he longs to talk with the people of Israel. He longs to explain to his fellow Jews why Christ is, in fact, the Messiah. So Acts 28, and uh, I'll just pick up at verse 23. So he's finally got an audience with the Jews just prior here. Um, and and they're, they're saying, well, we, we didn't really get letters from Judea about you. Um, we just know that all we've heard about this sect that you are preaching is, is bad. And so in verse 23, um, Paul res- we, we find his response to them. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him and at his lodging in, in greater number. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreed, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. And turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you, Paul says, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And he lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's how the book of Acts ends. Paul pleading with the Jews, don't you understand all that happened, all that came before you, all that you were a part of, the law and the prophets, it was all pointing you to Christ. He is the reality. He is the king. He is the Messiah. And yet, as Isaiah prophesied, your ears cannot hear, your eyes cannot see, and you cannot understand with your heart. They are a stiff-necked people. And Paul tells him, therefore, God has opened the door to the Gentiles and they will enter in. They will be partakers of this covenant. They will be the true circumcised of God. And of course, for the Jew, the invitation is open. Paul himself being a Jew, if you will repent, if you will believe, you may enter into the very building you were part of preparing. You may be partakers of this covenant. But if you will not, then you will perish with the wicked. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 2.12 would actually refer to these covenants as covenants of promise, which is a very uh, fascinating way that Paul would speak of all these covenants. They're the covenants of promise. They are covenants that 
that held forth the offer of salvation by way of promise and shadow and type and picture. They themselves were not the substance, but they pointed forward to Christ. I know I referenced Samuel uh, Renahan a number of times, but he gave a helpful summary as well of all of these covenants. He said, uh, many construction projects put up a coming soon sign, a conceptual or conceptual art of what the final project would look like. And we've all seen that even when uh, you know, Tim Hortons was being prepared. They had the sign out front for a while, a coming soon, Tim Hortons. And, Everyone is excited, and maybe there's a picture on the sign of what the building would look like. Uh, so he's using that as an illustration. He says, The kingdom of Israel was one giant coming soon sign concerning the Messiah. From their land to their temple, to their own genealogy, to their sacrifices, they were a picture of the Messiah and his kingdom. Israel, chosen in Abraham, Redeemed through Moses in the Exodus, under David's kingly rule, sacrificing lambs and goats while living in a blessed life in Canaan, was a tapestry of typology, the threads of the mystery of Christ. Israel enjoyed earthly benefits to the covenant of promise. The church enjoys the heavenly covenant that is established in Christ. Israel defined as the children of Abraham's flesh. The church defined as the children of Abraham's faith. Israel defined as the people of the circumcision of the flesh. The church, a circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Israel, those born of the flesh. The church, those born according to the spirit. Israel, outwardly Jewish. The church, inwardly Jewish because of the inward dwelling of the spirit. So Israel was designed to point forward and the tragedy is they refused to come down from the scaffolding and enter into the very building that God had prepared through them. And we find it time and time again, there will be a a picture that is fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. And one of the only times we actually have the word new covenant in the uh, New Testament is in Luke 22, 15, when Jesus, uh, I know you know this passage, he's establishing the, the Lord's Supper and he actually has gathered to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And it's fascinating to think about how the deliverance out of Egypt through the Passover lamb was a portrayal of how Christ would deliver his people out of the bondage of sin. And in uh, Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus tells his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until. Um, so, sorry, I, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you. That from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus identifies this moment as a a specific shift 
in all of the imagery, even of the Passover meal. No longer will it be remembered as the time from when God delivered Israel out of Egypt by the shedding of the Lamb's blood. Now this meal will remind the people of God how Christ offered his life, shed his blood, his body was broken, that we would be delivered out of the bondage of sin and we would be established as the people of Christ, the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes to the cross as the true Passover lamb of the better covenant, a better mediator, as our prophet, priest, and king. Satisfying all of the wrath of the Father that he might establish us as his own people. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is picking up at this point, Christ has accomplished this. He has been raised from the dead. And Paul is really battling the the lie that there is no resurrection in this chapter. And he's showing how if there is no resurrection, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then we are the most to be pitied in all of the earth. And Jesus... Um, having been raised, he said in verse 20, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. And so I just want to answer two quick questions before we wind down here in light of this passage and in light of God's work through the covenants coming to Christ is... Where are we at this moment in, in this redemptive plan of God? And how will, this, how will this age pass away and give way to the eternal state? And really, Paul answers the question, first of all, where are we personally at right now? Well, he says that Christ being raised as the first fruit, so he is like that first hopper full of grain from the field that comes off and It is the the first uh, reality of what is later going to be a great harvest. Christ standing as the glorified man. The first ever glorified man in a glorified body. But he represents a great host of people who will be glorified with him. And so we're still waiting for that, obviously, for Christ to return and glorify all things. But listen to what Paul says must happen first. We will, we will be partakers with Christ. But he says in verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so in many ways, we are now at the point where Christ has established the new covenant, The people of the covenant, as they repent of their sin and believe upon Christ, they are to be baptized, putting on that that sign, and they are to, to be brought into the church. They are members of the body of Christ. They are partakers of his blessings. He stands as their federal head, and we're told Christ will continue to reign until all things have been put under his feet. And I know there's debate as far as when is this reign specifically talking about, But I think in Paul's mind here, Christ, we're told in verse 24, 
When the end comes, the kingdom of God, um, uh, he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign. So Paul is seeing this sequence of events. Christ establishing the realities of the new covenant, the, the replacing of, of no longer Adam as our head, but Christ, he's standing as the Davidic king reigning, and he will reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. And when that has happened, Paul says, then he will hand all of this over to the Father. So in many ways, I would say Christ now is reigning. And through the gospel, as the church is advancing, the enemies of Christ are being put under his feet. Um, Paul would say in Romans 16, 19, For God will soon crush Satan and he will crush him underneath your feet. You see, Christ is reigning in the church as the church expands and proclaims the mystery of God, proclaims the gospel of God. The kingdom of Christ is expanding and growing and it is overcoming the powers of darkness and the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself, Paul says. And when that has happened, when the kingdom of Christ has been manifest through the church, And the gospel has gone forth to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ will in turn hand everything over to the Father. And seek to uh, glorify the Father. And Paul says, this is so that God may be all in all. And so we now enjoy the reign of Christ as kingdom citizens. His kingdom is advancing through the gospel as people are being brought in from darkness into his marvelous light. And this will continue to to proceed until Christ has brought, we're told, the enemies under his feet. And the last thing to go will be death itself when he comes and casts the serpent and the false prophets into the lake of fire. Death itself, we're told in Revelation, cast into the fire. And we will be changed, glorified with him. And that's really how Paul ends off here. And jump over down to uh, verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the, imperishable, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is, your, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, Paul says. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Paul says, in light of all of this truth, in light of all of these promises, in light of this day coming when we are changed in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies transformed, glorified with Christ, he uh, forever chases wickedness from the earth. Death is no more. It's swallowed up in victory. Paul says, therefore, in light of all of that, be steadfast. Do not waver. 
Do not grow faint. Be steadfast. Stand your ground. Hold fast to the confession of your faith. Do not give up on the gathering of yourselves together. Continue to search out the scriptures. Be in prayer. Being filled with the Spirit through hymns and songs and spiritual songs. Be steadfast, Paul says, because of these things. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Give yourself to the advancing of this kingdom. Leveraging your time. Leveraging your resources. Seeking to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. That he stands now as your federal head of a better covenant. And he will not fail. Do not lose heart. Do not grow faint. Do not become consumed in the the things of this world, but seek to continually give yourself to the advancing of this kingdom and to the praise of this king. Because Paul says that we must know that the work, the labor, is not in vain. It's not in vain. Though you may feel it's in vain at times, you may wonder, why am I dragging myself and my children out of bed on Sunday morning to, to come together I could be sleeping, it's my day off work, I have to go back and put in another long week. Why do I do these things? Why do I give myself to the the reading of scripture? Why do I open the Bible at at dinner time with my children when when it just seems like a a battle every time? There's someone pulling another kid's hair and someone's throwing his food at his brother and, and, and I'm feeling frustrated. What's the point of even pressing on in this? Paul says, because we have this certainty, Christ will finish this work. He will return. We will stand one day in glorified bodies, looking at our federal head of the new covenant, standing in the the glorified new heavens and new earth with Christ as our king in our very presence. We will speak to him. We will speak to one another. We will will think about how, how, how small and light our afflictions actually were upon the earth. They seemed heavy at the time. They seemed overwhelming. But as we stand in that place with Christ our King, how light and momentary, Paul says, those afflictions actually were. And we have to hold fast to believe the words of God here and continue to press on until our faith becomes sight. So let's pray and... uh, Hope that is a helpful conclusion to this study. So um, anyways, let's pray. Father, we come before you and Lord, on the one hand, we realize that your word is infinite in its depth and wisdom. But Lord, at the same time, you have made the gospel message clear enough for a young child to grasp its beauty and to delight in the offer of salvation in Christ what it means to be forgiven and to have a hope and a future, God. And so we thank you for both the simplicity of this message, but also for its infinite beauty. And we thank you most of all for Christ, our Lord, who humbled himself to become a man and fulfill all the purposes set forth even before the foundations of the world to redeem for himself a bride And, Lord, to see his perfect obedience even to the death on the cross and being mocked and ridiculed by the very creation he made, subject to the law that he gave, but, Lord, fulfilling all the prophets and the law. And so we rejoice 
and give you thanks this day. Help us to heed the words of Paul, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to be abounding in your work, knowing that this work is not in vain, no matter what our emotions may tell us, no matter what our culture may tell us, Lord, that you tell us it's not in vain. And so help us to put our hand to the plow and, Lord, to spend ourselves for your sake. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.